All right, well, we're glad you're here this morning. My name is Alex York. I'm the associate pastor here at Gateway, and we've been working through a study in the book of James this summer, and hopefully you guys have been reading along. This is a great opportunity for us as a church to spend some time camped out in one book of the Bible. And so it's a short enough book that even if you have not started doing this kind of daily, reading a chapter a day, you could read through it several times over the next month or so as we wrap up the series. This morning, I want you to take a look at some famous predictions. This came from a BuzzFeed article last year on some famously incorrect predictions. So let's just take a look at some really incredibly bad predictions. Stock prices have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. That was the prediction three days before the stock market crash in 1929 by a well-known economist named Irving Fisher. All right, let's look at the next one. No likelihood that man can ever tap the power of the atom. That was a Nobel Prize winner and American physicist, Robert Millikan, in 1923. So even though it was 20 years ahead, he had no idea that was ever going to be workable. Rock and roll will be gone by June. That's from Variety Magazine in 1955. I thought the same thing about rap about 15 years ago. I'm really impressed that it's still around. Next one. The Beatles have no future in show business. That was Decca Records executive to the band's manager following an audition in 1962. Not interested. Nobody's interested in four guys' vocal groups. Ah, computers in the future weigh no more than one and a half tons. It's amazing how, you know futuristic that was. That was in 1949, Popular Mechanics. I predict the internet will soon go spectacularly supernova and in 1996 catastrophically collapse. Interestingly enough, that was the prediction in December of 1995 by the inventor of the ethernet. There's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. No chance. Not surprisingly, that quote in 2007 was from the CEO of Microsoft, so... <laughs> the future's really hard to predict with any kind of accuracy. There are always people who would like you to think that they kind of know what's coming up, but it's very, very difficult. And we're going to spend some time this morning looking at what James has to say about facing the future. As we work through the series, remember, James was written by the brother of Jesus, and he was a leader in the early church, even though a lot of the Gospels record that as an adult, at least early on in Jesus' ministry, he wasn't convinced that his brother really was the Messiah. But soon after that, he decides to follow Christ, and within a couple of decades, he is one of the primary leaders of the church in Jerusalem. So this is one of our earliest writings in the New Testament, and James is addressing the early Christian believers who mostly were Jews, and they had been scattered all over the Roman Empire because of the persecution of the Jews. And so what we look at today builds on what we've covered in the last couple of weeks. First of all, James told us to submit ourselves to God and our relationships to God, and now he's going to talk to us about entrusting our future to God. So let's read this passage together, and I'd like for you to read it with me. Now listen, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there. Carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone, then, 
who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Let's pray before we jump in. God, this morning we're here because we want to hear from you. And I am very much aware of my inadequacy as a speaker, as a teacher, as a model in life. But I am grateful that you would use someone even like me. And so I ask that you would filter out um, you know, any part of this message that comes from me and just help us to focus in on your word. Help us to hear what you have to say to each one of us. Help us to feel some stirring in our hearts or awaken thoughts in our mind that draw us closer to you, that help us to see your purpose for our lives and that would change us today. We give you the next few minutes, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So James is going to give us four big ideas that will help us in facing the future. He's going to help us have the the kind of perspective that will allow us to face the future in a God-honoring way. And the very first point that he makes is, do not act like you're in control. At the very beginning of this passage, he says, now listen, pay attention. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. And then he says, today or tomorrow, you guys, you who say today or tomorrow, will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Now, first pass, you hear that and you go, well, what's wrong with that? I mean, that, that's what everybody does. And James wants his hearers to understand that while that's what a lot of people say, if that's what you're saying and you're a follower of Christ, it's reflective of what you think. In your head, if you think you're in control of what happens in the future, you're already in trouble. You'll carry on business and make money. If you plan well and execute the plan well, if you work the plan, you're going to be successful. That's what a lot of people think. In James' day and in our day, and James says that's not actually the case. Now keep in mind that because many of these Jewish readers had been scattered around the known world of the time, they lost any property they had, their farmland. They were primarily from an agrarian economy. But because they had to pack up and leave, they were refugees, they had to figure out how to make a living, and so many of them turned to small businesses, to trading, to buying and selling and marketing things. And so they began to make money, and being wise business people was very much a part of Jewish culture at this time. And as you probably know, the reputation of Jewish people being shrewd business people is well known, and it's kind of been born in history So this was kind of where that stereotype got its beginning uh, because this was the case for them. And so James was writing to these business people saying there's nothing wrong with working hard and being wise with your deals, but if your goal, if your bottom line is how to maximize your profit, and if you think that because you plan and you prepare and you lay out a business model and you execute it, you're going to get ahead in the world, that's a very worldly, ungodly point of view. James may have remembered Jesus when he taught and said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? The point is that there's far more to life than just making a profit. James didn't want his readers to think that they should approach their business dealings and the plans for their future without having God right in the middle of them. The fact that they no longer lived in Jerusalem or in Israel didn't mean that they could cut God out of their plans. Like us, many of them found it pretty easy to divorce God from their work or from their finances, or their retirement strategy. Many of them, like us, were saying to God, look, I believe in you, God, but when it comes to relationships, I feel like, you know, I kind of know what I'm doing here. Or, you know, God, I'm going to give regularly to you, okay, as an act of faith. So 
The rest of my money, that's kind of my call, and I'm going to spend it the way I want to. And we compartmentalize our lives, and we think that, you know, if I'm kind of being faithful to God in this area, in my spiritual life, or on Sunday mornings, or I try to treat people with kindness, or I try to read my Bible, that then that kind of cuts out that area of life, and all the rest belongs to us, and we can do whatever seems best to us. And James is saying that will not work. If you cut God out of any area of your life, but especially your approach to the future, you're making a mistake, and you're going to miss out on the blessings and the life that would otherwise be yours. So James kind of gives us some good reasons why we shouldn't act like we're in control. He says, you don't even know tomorrow. I mean, you know, you say you're going to do this next year and you lay out your plan for the future. You have no idea what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. And that's true for us even today. It's not within your power to know what the future holds. So there's no way you can be thinking about a week from now or three weeks from now or a year from now. And even if you have some idea about what's coming up in the days ahead, there's an enormous difference between knowing what's coming and having some ability to control that. Jill and I were at a minor league baseball game last night, and so we were watching the pitches coming, and some of them were as fast as like 95 miles an hour. Others were like 65 miles an hour. Well, you could take me, and I played baseball when I was a kid. You could put me in the batter's box, and the pitcher would tell me, I'm going to throw you a slow ball, and it's going to be low and outside, and that's still not going to help me one bit. Knowing and being able to do something about the future are two different things. We may be able to make an educated guess about what's coming, but that's a completely different thing than being able to handle it. And then James gives us a second reason why we shouldn't act like we're in control. He says, life is uncertain, and it's short. Not a single one of us knows how many days have been allotted to us. James says, you know, your life is like a mist. It's like the fog in the morning. You see it for a little bit, but as soon as it starts warming up and the sun comes out, it's gone. It's here one moment, gone another. And he's not necessarily saying, wow, you're insignificant. Your life doesn't count for anything. You're like a puff of smoke or a little cloud of fog. That's not his point. His point is that life is short. Even if you get 70 or 80 years on this earth, you're going to feel like life is short. And in the eternal perspective, it is short. And even with the days we do have, there's incredible uncertainty. We live in a troubled, chaotic, broken world, and the unpredictability and the uncertainty, some of it comes because of our own mistakes, but a lot of it comes from things that are outside of our control. And while our lives are short, God's is not. He's eternal. He stands outside of time and space. He knows everything. Our perspective is incredibly limited, and God's is not. So do you really want to build your life plans on your limited view of things, or do you want to entrust your future to the author of life and the source of all creativity and all order in the universe? Now, listen, the Bible makes it incredibly clear that planning is a good thing, that thinking ahead, that laying out your plans, counting the cost is a good thing. The Old Testament book of Proverbs encourages us over and over again to plan ahead. Jesus encouraged us to count the cost before we make a commitment. Think about what's going to be involved in living out that commitment. So God is not in any way against planning ahead. That's not what James is getting at. He's saying, if your plans do not include God, you're in trouble. Sometimes it may be unintentional. You know, God, I, I want to follow you and I want to have a God-honoring family, but when it comes to work, I don't really know how to fit you into my job, you know? There's not a prayer meeting every morning. I, I don't know what it looks like to take my faith to work with me. So I'm just going to tackle it as the best I can, and 
you know, maybe over time I'll figure out how my professional and spiritual life mixes. Other times, I think it's deliberate that we kind of push God out of the realm of life that we want him out of. You know, I'm pretty sure that I know what he wants in my social life or my standards of conduct, but I choose to handle myself in another way because I want this and it feels right to me. Or I can justify it somehow. That's not how it works. If we want to face the future well, we have to just start by admitting that we're not in control and God is. The second big thing that James says we ought to think about is do not boast or brag. So don't think you're in control of things and don't boast or brag about it. The people that James is talking to here are the same ones that he's referred to in earlier parts of this passage of Scripture. And so when Kevin talked with us last week, he talked about you know, people who are self-centered and they're trying to get what they want and their quarrels and fights because of that. And two weeks ago, when I was talking about earthly wisdom and worldly wisdom, there were some of James' hearers who were taking the worldly perspective and they were trying to see life in terms of what they could get out of it. They were self-promoting. And James says, don't do that. All kinds of boasting and bragging, it's evil. Now, the NIV says boasting and bragging, and it uses that phrase the translators do to try to help us capture this idea in the Greek language, but what really James is saying is bragging in self-absorbed arrogance. Stop bragging, promoting yourself in this self-absorbed arrogance. Uh, You know, bragging, talking about ourselves, that's very unappealing. I think we all, you know, at times kind of maybe we're around friends or it just seems like, you know, this is such a cool thing, I just have to share it. So we kind of venture into that territory and maybe sometimes I may be the only one, but I'll say something and then I realize like, wow, that was pretty much, you know, bragging. I probably should have dialed that back about 50%. But when we brag in self-absorbed, self-consumed arrogance, when our pride assures us that we're above the people around us, that we have the right to judge others, that we're the ones in the right and they're wrong, and we want to promote our point of view. Clearly, that's not something that James or God sees as a positive quality. And the attitude that leads you in that direction, you know, whether we're talking a small amount of arrogant boasting or a large amount of prideful, self-centered self-promotion, it's evil, James says. It has its roots in ungodly things, and it leads to ever more destructive and malicious thoughts and actions. It works against God and his priorities, which are good. So that kind of attitude, those kind of actions are evil. Earlier in this chapter, James tells us that God is opposed to the proud, but he honors those who are humble. So if we're the ones that are promoting ourselves, just realize that we're putting ourselves at odds with God. James isn't just saying, don't give voice to the pride and arrogance that you feel in your heart. I mean, that would be a good place to start. If you feel like you're better than everybody else, just keep it to yourself. But what James is pushing for is, you need to relentlessly attack that attitude in you. If you see that anywhere, you need to ruthlessly eradicate it. It's like Ed was saying, you know, from the psalmist, Lord, examine my heart. See if there's anything in there that doesn't belong, if there's anything that you want to carve out. James is pushing us to recognize these tendencies in ourselves, and wherever we see even hints of this kind of attitude, we need to surrender it to God and fight back with ruthless energy. 
I think, a constant danger for people who live in affluence in James' time and in our time and in our neighborhoods is to think that we have what we have because we earned it. We deserve it. You know, I have worked hard to have the kind of house and the kind of car I drive. I have have done this, you know, I worked for 20 years and so I can do this. Or, you know, I've been investing for four years so I can take this retirement. This is what I have worked for. But James, as a kid who grew up in synagogue, would have remembered Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the ability to produce wealth. So if we're serious about following God, we don't try to take credit for what He's done. We don't draw attention to ourselves. We don't boast and brag. So James said there's a wrong way of facing your future. There's a a wrong perspective uh, for you to have. And if you think you're in control and your ways are the ways that other people need to pay attention to and you're doing a great job of this, that's the wrong way. The right way is for you to submit your plans to God. Submit your plans to God. Acknowledge that the future belongs to Him and He's ultimately the one that's in control. Understand that the most rich and fulfilling life you could ever imagine is only going to be something you experience if you're walking with God, if you're letting Him determine your course. So in verse 15, James says, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. So it's a reminder to yourself that God is the one that's ultimately in control. But it's also maybe a statement or a testimony to the people around you that you're trying to follow the Lord, that you're submitting, that you're trying to follow in his footsteps, follow where he leads. So I, I don't think this is a magic you know, phrase that if we just say, Lord willing, you know, it's like rubbing the lamp and the genie gives us what we want. That's not what James is getting at here. There's no special power in saying, Lord willing, but the idea behind it ought to show up. And so maybe we say, you know, you're an elementary kid in here this morning. What do you want to be when you grow up? Well, what I really want to do, if it's okay with God, is to be a pilot or a dinosaur or a princess or, you know, whatever it is. What's next for you career-wise? Well, I've been thinking and praying about that for a while, and I, I think I'm almost at the point where I'm ready to sort of change gears and maybe jump to a different company. Hey, Pastor Ed, what's going on with the building program? Well, we feel like God wants us to be, uh, build a building just up the road starting next summer. But we want to be really careful every step of the way that we're checking in with him and we're making sure that we don't get off track to the right or left or that we're not off pace and getting ahead of ourselves or behind the curve. You know, we're just trying to take it step by step in dependence on him. I think James is encouraging us to do more than just think about this in our minds, although this is a great place to start. What he wants us to do is to not just have a thought in our head, but to put that sentiment into action. I don't know if it's always saying, Lord willing. But it seems like what he's getting at is, uh, based on the fact that he's told us before, is like, put your faith into action. Don't just hear it, but do it. I think what he's getting at here is, it's not enough just to think this or to have it in your heart. I want you to do something with us. He's encouraging us to take an internal conviction and give it an external expression. And he's just using one example of how we might acknowledge our trust in the Lord. Now, understand that this idea of submitting to God, that's exactly what Jesus did the night before he was crucified. Remember, he said, Lord, not my will, but yours. And so because Jesus was willing 
to not take the easy way out because he submitted to his heavenly father and he was obedient even to death. He ended up willingly going to the cross. And he died there to satisfy the consequences of your sin and my disobedience, of our desire to live life on our own. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to do that. But he chose to. And he took what would have been good or convenient for him, and he submitted that to God, and he elevated God's plan, God's desire. And so it's the way that we come to know God is through Christ and what he has already done for us on the cross. It's a gift. It's nothing we deserve. It's by grace, and we just receive it. But we also have to understand that if we're going to be forgiven and we're going to follow Christ, then what he expects is for us to follow in his footsteps. And he wants us to pray that same kind of prayer. Father, it's not what I want, it's what you want. I'm going to submit my will to yours. I'm pushing what I want down, and I'm elevating what you want. And so when it comes to planning, I I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing is in line with what you want. What about when we trust God, and we do our best, and we run into roadblocks? or disaster, or calamity, or hardship. Romans 8.28 says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purposes. And Pastor Ed taught us at the very beginning of the series, you know, James chapter 1, whenever you run into these hard times, you should count it joy because you know God is at work building your faith. And God will ultimately use even our failures, even our hardships to bless us. In practical terms, submitting our plans to God, it means you know, things like starting with prayer and then checking in with God at each step of the process, uh, praying frequently, being flexible and submissive to Him, being ready to move ahead when the opportunity presents itself, but also willing to slow down when God says to slow down, and seeking wise counsel from people around us who can help us figure out, you know, am I maybe off track? Are there any yellow flags to this plan that I have? Or does it look like this could be what God wants? There's a fourth thing that James points us to. Not only should we not act like we're in control and not boast or brag about our own abilities, we submit ourselves to God and we submit our plans to Him. And then the fourth thing, he says, do good. Verse 17 reads, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now, seems kind of weird for him to throw that in with what he's just said at first blush. And at a high altitude, big picture, I think James is pulling together a lot of thoughts that he's been camped out on all through the first four chapters of the book. So he talked about, you know, there's a difference between knowing and doing, and you want to be a doer if you're following Christ. And then in chapter two, he said, faith without works is dead. You know, if, if you think believing is enough, you're wrong. There has to be some Outward evidence of your belief, it has to show up in your life. And so what James is saying here is, look, just big picture, if there's good that needs to be done, if there's some righteous act that needs to be handled on God's behalf, you need to do it. It's not enough for you to sit back and pray about it or to feel empathy for somebody. You're supposed to get in there and fix it. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it's in your power to act. James is saying, be aggressive with your faith, just like Jesus was. Galatians 6.10, Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, a lot of people think that Paul and James kind of look at things from different perspectives, but Paul seems to line up perfectly with what James says 
He says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Now, you understand that people of faith often have the reputation of being people who don't do squat. Oh, I'll be praying about that. Awesome. Oh, I wrote a check. I gave $10. Wonderful. But there are so many needs around us. And I think James is saying, look, open your eyes. God has given you a green light. If you see something that needs to be done to advance God's priorities, if you see an area where the kingdom of God can be forcefully advanced, do not sit on your butt. Get moving. Do something about it. You see a homeless person, you got five bucks in your pocket, buy him a burger. You see somebody at work who's obviously laboring with something, you got a mouth, give them some encouraging words. Don't just sit there. Don't act like you're removed from this. Jesus stepped right in the middle of the misery and hardship and difficult things in the world. And I think here, James is giving us an invitation to do the same thing. Now, on a smaller scale, in the context of this passage, I think James is saying, look, if life is short, and the future is uncertain, then I better jump on every opportunity to love and serve the people around me. If God's really in control of my future, then he's also in control of what goes on here and now, and I'm going to submit to him, and as I'm walking to my car, or as I'm driving to work, or while I'm in the office, I'm not going to be just thinking about the future. I'm going to be thinking about the here and now, and I want to be useful to him. If a God-honoring life isn't about self-promotion and what's in my best interest, then I'm going to focus on serving others. And I need to be ready to jump on every opportunity to do whatever is good and right. We tend to think of sin as doing something bad. You know, so the struggle with sin is to not do the bad stuff. And James is saying, okay, well, that's part of it, but think about the other side of the coin. If you know there is something that you should be doing, if God taps you on the heart, nudges you, and you don't do it, that's sin. Some situations, you don't know what the right thing to do is. I get that. And James is saying, when you know the right thing you're supposed to do and you don't do it, that's disobedience to God. That's rebellion to God. doesn't make any difference whether you're a Christian or not. If that's your perspective and God taps you on the heart and you go, "Mm, don't think so. Don't expect God to bless you in that. You're putting distance between you and God. And you're stepping outside of being useful to him. So don't think that that's going to serve you well. Interesting statement, practice makes perfect. If we, over and over again, hear God saying something and we ignore him, we get pretty good at that. And after a while, we we don't hear his voice anymore. Some of you guys feel like, you know, God never stirs my heart anymore. It could be because there's a pattern in your life when God stirs you or taps you on the heart, or kicks you in the butt, and you go like, oh, I I don't think so, I don't don't know. Well, clearly, you know, there's an opportunity to jump in. Now, the flip side of that's true also, that if every time we hear God stirring, or God's, you know, seems like he's encouraging us to do something, if we act on that with a bold, aggressive faith, and we say, you know, gosh, I I don't know, that homeless guy, he could be an alcoholic, I don't want to give him money, you know, he might spend it on booze, could be dangerous, I, I don't know what to do, but... In faith, I'm going to offer to buy him a burger. Or I'm going to see if, you know, 
you know, if he wants to go in to the sandwich shop and, you know, I'll get him some coffee or whatever. Okay, as long as you're taking action on that prompting from God, you're going to get better at hearing him. And you're going to get better at moving when God says to move. I think the, the big thing here is that James just wants us to know that God is honored when we aggressively pursue opportunities to love and serve the people around us. So when we see opportunities to do what is right and good, we're supposed to do it. The church staff spent Thursday and Friday at the Willow Creek Leadership Summit. We were down at a church in Manassas that was doing a, a simulcast, I guess you call it, and it was a great conference, way cheaper than flying to Chicago and spending a couple of days, although if you guys want to send us next year, we're up for that. So just mentioning that we would do that to serve you. One of the sessions on uh, Friday was about integrating our faith into the marketplace. And I thought about this passage in that context because the overwhelming majority of you work in government, in education, in the marketplace. You do some kind of business. That's how you make your living. So the majority of your week is spent in a, an environment where you're surrounded by uh, people who probably are not Christ followers and where the values and priorities are not the same as those in the kingdom of God. But I think what James is saying here has clear implications for how our faith intersects our work. So he would say, don't cut God out of your business dealings. You know, these merchants, these first century Christians, they were going about their business just like every other person was doing it. And James would say, don't do that. You know, there's a way that you can live out your faith at work, your integrity, your work ethic. You could pray for your coworkers. Don't settle for just being another employee. Don't cut God out of your work life. He would say, choose humility over bragging. You know, instead of trying to promote yourself, get the promotion, or draw attention to your work accomplishments, what if you made other people successful? What if you were on the lookout for other people's needs and concerns? What if you volunteered to help somebody who had to stay late and work on a project? Or what if you were there to listen and ask questions when somebody was struggling with something? He would say, submit your work to the Lord. You know, it's kind of like take Jesus to work day. I mean, you know, think about how you can do your job in a way that honors God. Work with excellence and diligence because God values your work. And then grab up every opportunity to do good. So as opportunities come up to serve and bless the people that you work with, I mean, you're like their pastor at work. You're a missionary to the people that are in the circle of your influence at work. You know their culture. You know the business language, you know their needs, and you're around them all the time. And I think James would say is don't feel like your work is separate from your faith life. This is a place where faith is incredibly important and where God will bless you if you take the challenge of being a missionary to those you work with. All right, we've covered a lot of ground this morning, and so to give you maybe an idea of what this looks like in real life. I've asked Andy Almaguer to come up and have a seat, and I want to talk to him for a couple of minutes. Andy is a great guy. You'll find him here most Sunday mornings early, and he sticks around late. He'll do just about anything you ask. Even if you ask him to do an interview, something that he really doesn't like, he will still do it for you. So I appreciate that, Andy. Andy, how did you end up coming to Gateway? Um, my son, we sent him to Cub Scouts, and I met Tom Bellino and Matt Howdershell and Becky and Leanne. Awesome. How long ago was that? 
My baptism certificate says 2002. Okay, so it's been a few years. So you're here at Gateway. Life is good. It's a wonderful church, great leaders, all of the stuff that Kevin was saying. But a year and a half ago, roughly, there was some uncertainty introduced into your life. Tell us about that. I was laid off second time. I was laid off uh, after 20-some years. Got a job that lasted seven years. Uh, got laid off from that one. So I was out of work for almost a year. During that year, what happened to you spiritually? I mean, was it like, oh, yes, I just, you know, I stayed close to God, and that's what sustained me? Or was it like, God, what are you doing? Was, that was a tough time. Uh, it's very easy to get depressed. It's very easy to get the Eeyore syndrome, oh, me, you know. But it's all these different emotions, you know. Is it something I did? You know, could I have done something different to keep my job? But, you know, all this goes through your head. Uh, what was helpful to you then in that period? What did people do that, you know, actually was helpful? Definitely group. Group was helpful, you know, every week. Small group? People, small group. Uh, what are, group are you in? Morgan's. Okay. Just a little pitch I was, there. I was Rachel kick, and... kicked out from the Bellinos. You know, ah, okay. Troublemaker. <laughs> but, so a small group, helped, what else? I met with Tom and Greg Bachman, uh, who were bo- both unemployed. Every Tuesday morning, we would do coffee. So that was very helpful to have someone going through the same thing. Hmm. You know, and then we'd pray for each other and you know, talk about jobs and stuff, what we applied for. So after this season, it's almost a year long, you get a job, yeah. and life is good. <laughs> yeah. uh, work and paychecks, those are and very nice things. Things start slowing down again, and I'm ah. seeing the same pattern. <laughs> okay. And then so, uh, just in the last week or two then, yeah. more uncertainty. About two weeks ago, it was getting very slow, and my manager, call your manager, that's not a good sign. <laughs> so she says, well, you know, it's getting slow. Uh, this is Wednesday. She said, uh, Friday is going to have to be your last day. So I'm like, here we go again. <laughs> uh, talk about holding your tongue. We talked about that a few weeks ago. I was ready to say, why wait till Wednesday? I got things to do. I'll go right now. Two days isn't going to make a big difference, you know. But I said, you know, you're leaving on good terms. We're going to try to find you a position before Friday. That's a pie shell promise, easily made, easily broken. Mm -hmm. So I emailed my group leaders and said, don't send anything out to the group yet, but I think I'm going to get laid off again this Friday. So Thursday I come in, and my coworker said, I'm putting in my resignation. So four hours later, call your manager. (laughs) Just kidding. We're going to extend your contract. You're staying. Okay. So I'm safe. All right. For now. For now. Yeah. So you live in that tension. I mean, it's great that Mm. you have a job, but you also realize that it hinges on the economy and whatever else. Somebody up the food chain making good decisions and, and all of that. What would you say to someone who's in the audience this morning, who's, you know, been laid off or who is out of work right now and frustrated and needing God to do um, something. I'm sure they're not alone. <laughs> yeah. Find a group, find a small group, definitely seek prayer. That's the church office sent me a card. You know, we're praying for it. It's just, you don't know the impact that has on someone who's out of work. You know, it's just like, wow, out of the blue, you know, okay. Seek prayer and find people who are in the same boat that you are, you know, and get together with them. Good. Hey, thanks, Andy. Appreciate you sharing. Thank you. Give them a round of applause. So two things that I want you to do at the end of the service here. I want you to actually take out your phone. This is where you are legitimately allowed to get your phone out. And I want you to either open your calendar 
and set an appointment tomorrow morning when you get up or set your alarm for tomorrow morning. And I want you to entitle that calendar event, Lord Willing. And just go ahead and do it now as a reminder that the future belongs to God, not to you. And it may be that you choose, you know, to kind of have that reminder recur through this week so that as you start your day, you're thinking about, wait a minute, you know, I need to submit my plans to God and I want to go with his plan rather than mine. Something else we want to do this morning while you're setting your calendar or your alarm. In just a moment, we're going to look at a series of verses that I want you to read silently. And we're just going to be quiet. We don't need to dim the lights or anything else. We're just going to look at those. These are passages from Scripture that relate to the future where God offers us a glimpse of his view of the future. And so after we do that, just read those silently. I'm going to close this in prayer, and we're going to go home. So take a look at these verses.